Before we get started with this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, I just want to warn you that the passage is vulgar. If you have those with mm, small ears with you in the car, or if you're at work, you might want to save this passage for another time because, wow, we're about to get into it. So let's go there with Dante and the demons. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, as I've already said, and we are slow walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. If you are dropping in here at this episode for the first time, <laughs> God save your mortal soul. But let me just say that we are way down in hell. We're in Canto 21 of 34 that make up Dante's first canticle, Inferno or Hell. We're out at the end of that Canto 21, we're at lines 103 through 126 in this podcast. Where are we? We're in the eighth circle of hell, the largest landmass of hell, the circle of fraud. We are in the fifth of the evil pouches. We're amongst the barriters, those who sell political office for money or who take kickbacks or who take bribes. In other words, we would say in the modern world, the grifters. We have seen one thrown into a pit of boiling pitch that makes a this ring by a demon who had him hooked like a side of beef through the Achilles tendon ran away that demon did to go get more Virgil knew he had to face these demons he crossed over the bridge to the other side called them out from under out they came boiling and they seemed to want to do harm to our pilgrim in fact one of them even wanted to poke our pilgrim in the butt with one of its forks that's where we left it we left Virgil and our pilgrim Dante staring down a wild pack of demons. By the way, if you want to see this translation, it lives on my website, markscarborough.com. That's Scarborough, not Scarborough, like Scarborough Fair, Mark, M-A-R-K, Scarborough. And you can go there and find my English translation. Uh, you know that I do a very workaday translation. It's not poetic. I try to be as close as I can to the original. I'm going to talk about translating when we come out of the passage, but for now, Let's just say you can see that there. So let's uh, set off lines 103 through 126. But that demon who'd been holding forth with my master jerked around fast and said, Heal! Heal, tusslehead! And then he said to us, It's not possible for you to go any farther along this spoke because the sixth arch is busted up all over the bottom of the ditch. But... If it pleases you to keep going, stroll along the cliff right here. Soon enough, there'll be another arch you can get across. Yesterday, at a moment five hours later than this one, 1,266 years ago, that marks the anniversary of the tremor that broke the road. I'm mustering my men to go along that way and see if any sinner has come up for air. You can go with them. They won't harm you. Harlequin, step out and frost trampler, he started to say. You too, badass dog. Curly Beard will lead the squadron. Love crack? Come along, and little big dragon, as well as tusked big pig and mange dog and butterfly imp and crazy red face. You go have a look at the simmering bird lime and get these two safe to the next ledge that runs intact over the pit. 
That's The Long Speech by Evil Tale by Malakota, summoning up a squadron of ten demons with incredibly vulgar names to help lead Virgil and the Pilgrim on to where they can cross the bridge that would go over the sixth of the evil pouches. There's much to be said here. I want to talk a little bit about translating, and then I want to do three different things in the passage. I want to point you to something fishy going on. I want to talk about that problem of timing 1,266 years ago, and I want to talk about the names of the demons. So let's get started. As I already said, I do a rather workaday translation of Dante's comedy from the Florentine. I'm not trying to be poetic. I'm not trying to save any of the rhyme. I'm not trying to do anything except render it pretty close to English. But I am making decisions along the way. You should know that Dante's text runs in and out of the present tense to the past tense to the present tense to past tense. And many scholars have reasons for that. Many scholars think Dante tends to speak in the present tense about certain things, whether it be theologically or about Virgil. They tend to think that the present tense carries certain kinds of weight in the poem, whereas the past tense doesn't, or the past tense is a lighter form of narrative. And when the text flips into the present, it becomes more, mm, what's the right word, grandiose. You should know that that's happening. I'm blowing past that. I'm putting everything in the past tense. That's an interpretive decision on my part to make the text more accessible. You should know that there are all kinds of, and we're going to get to them in this passage, particularly in the names of those demons, all kinds of translation problems that go on. And I am fully aware, and I just want to be really upfront about this, that the act of translation is at its core, the act of interpretation. It's very hard to translate a passage and not bring your interpretive apparatus with you. You'll see this if you go out to other translations. If you go out to the Lombardo or you go out to the Hollander translations, you'll see that they're bringing their interpretive rubric forward with them about what they think the poem is about. Any act of translation, whether it's Dostoevsky or Moliere, any act of translation into another language is an act of interpretation by definition, and even more so, perhaps, from poetry. So I just want to say this is a good place to remind you that I'm aware that this is a faulty translation. Would that we could all do this in the medieval Florentine? Would that we could all discuss this in the medieval Florentine? Would that we could all speak the medieval Florentine to each other? But we can't. We're doing the best we can, and here we go into a very strange passage, all centered on the big speech that evil tale Malakota gives to Virgil and the Pilgrim. So let's start off with the first nine lines of this passage. But that demon, that is Malakota, evil tale, who'd been holding forth my master, jerked around fast and said, heel, heel, Tusslehead, that's how I translated it. We want to talk about that in a second. Tusslehead, that's probably the demon that had stepped out and said, maybe I should poke him in the butt. And they all said, yeah, yeah, give it to him. In the last passage, that's probably who he's talking to right here, that one that said, maybe I should give him to him in the butt. And he stops him. Malakota stops this Tusslehead. He says... He turns back to Virgil and says, it's not possible for you to go any farther along this spoke. The word he uses is kind of like wheel spoke. The idea here, remember, is that there are these bridges running like spokes or a spoke 
spider web filaments. I know I'm mixing my metaphors down toward a central pit. And he's kind of invoking that wheel spoke here of what this place looks like and he says you can't go any farther along this spoke because the sixth arch is busted up all over the bottom of the ditch so what he says is that the bridge over the sixth ditch is broken and you're not going to be able to get over there from where you're currently standing up on that embankment looking down into the pouch. Virgil can't keep going down that spoke that they were going down bridge to bridge to bridge to bridge because it's all fallen apart. That's what the demon says. He says, if it pleases you to keep going, go along the cliff. The word he uses is kind of escarpment, so a, a sheer drop. Go along the cliff that you're standing on and you'll get to another art. You should know automatically that something's wrong in this passage. I don't want to give it away if you don't know what's wrong. We're going to come to it soon enough. But something's wrong in Evil Tale's speech. And you should tell this in two ways. One, why doesn't he want Tusslehead to attack them? I mean, what's the point? I mean, Tusslehead's amazing to poke him in the butt. These are demons. They like to torment people. Well, go ahead, at, as we would say in the South. Have a big time. Have a big day doing it. Why doesn't he want him to attack him? That's automatically strange, given that demons like to inflict pain. It should set off a little alarm. What? Why didn't he attack him? And second, when he says, if it pleases you to keep going, stroll along the cliff right here, he uses a very formal phrase, pur vi piace. That's why I translated, if it pleases you, so that it would sound very formal when he says, pur vi piace. It's super polite. You know, if I were really translating this with all my apparatus and interpretive apparatus in place, I would add words here like, say, you know, if it pleases your lordship, keep going. And I would add that for humorous sake, because it kind of has this feel of being overly polite. And demons aren't known for being <laughs> overly polite. Calling off one demon and then turning back and being really polite, little bells should go off in your head if you know anything about demons. But we're not going to say what those bells are until we get to it in the plot. If you know what's coming, you know what's coming. If you don't, let's save it and have a little suspense here. Let's talk for a minute about the translation of that one demon, Tusslehead, the translation of his name. The word in the Florentine is scarmiglione, and you should know that the words used for these demons' names are incredibly hard to translate. Let me just give you an example of scarmiglione and why it's so hard to translate. There are a whole group of critics who claim that this is a deformation, a malformation of the verb scarmigliare, which means to dishevel, like to dishevel your hair on your head, like somebody rubs your hair on your head and dishevels it, or somebody, you know, tosses clothes around and ruins your laundry to dishevel. But there's another <laughs> set of scholars who think what this is is Carminare, which is the verb that means to card or comb wool. So you can see the disheveling a little there. And it's got an S on the front of it, which in the medieval Florentine, the S prefix is a privative. Um, what's a privative? That it is, it says not, like the A in amoral or the 
in an infidelity. It's a negation of the word behind it, amoral infidelity. So this would be something like not carded or not combed wool. It kind of has the same idea of dishevel, thus I translated it tussle head, but scamiglione is notoriously tough to translate, and it is only the first of lots of translation problems with the names of these demons. But before we get to that, let's get to the strange and very accurate dating in the passage. After Evil Tales says, you know, you can go along here and keep going along and you'll find another bridge that'll get you over the sixth ditch. So the track you've been going down, beep, 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 straight on from Malabolja 1, 2, 3, 4, straight on down, you, you, you can't go down easily anymore, can't go down a straight line anymore. So, you know, if you go along the escarpment, the cliff, you'll find another bridge down, thus giving us this wheel spoke pattern. And then suddenly... He comes out with this pronouncement, which is so wild and out of the blue. Yesterday, at a moment five hours later than this one, 1,266 years ago, that marks the anniversary of the tremor that broke the road. What in the world is going on here? 1,266 years ago dates the poem Exactly. What he's talking about is Jesus dying on the cross. Remember, we've already kind of seen bits of this. We even saw it up amongst the lustful, way up there with Francesca. There may be a way in which that circle lay in a bit of ruins. And then we saw the scree-filled slope as a lot of ruins that led us down into the violent. And Virgil was a little amazed by that and said he hadn't seen so much ruin before. And we talked all about the harrowing of hell and the shaking of hell when Jesus died on the cross. Well, this is exact dating. What he's saying is that 1,266 years ago, everything shook and this the bridges over here some of them broke down 1266 years ago would be 34 AD which puts which is the year that Jesus died 34 AD which puts us exactly in the year 1300 there is a little bit of funkiness here i should say one good thing is yesterday he's talking about good friday remember so that would be the day that Jesus died good friday remember i told you that the journey starts in canto 1 on Maundy Thursday, the day before Good Friday in, in Christian tradition. So yesterday would have been Good Friday. We found out in Canto 20 at lines 124 through 129, Virgil did a little um, astrological reading of what the signs look like. And we found out that it was about six in the morning. Now he says five hours later than this one, Dante thinks we know that Jesus dies at noon. So that means an hour has elapsed since we were in Canto 20 at the end of the soothsayers. About one hour has elapsed because there's going to be five more hours and then it's noon, the time Jesus died. And that happened yesterday at noon. And the devil just dates it precisely. There are two weird things here. One, Jesus didn't die at noon. <laughs> We know from the Convivio that Dante thinks Jesus died at noon. In the Convivio, in chapter 23, right about section 10, line 10, right along in there, Dante gives the time of Jesus' death as noon. That's actually not right. In the Gospel of Luke, 
chapter 23, lines 44 through 47, what it says is that the darkness covered the earth at noon, and then Jesus dies three hours later. So Jesus dies at 3 p.m. So Jesus doesn't die at noon, but Dante thinks he did. Robert Hollander says that Dante is not above writing any text to his own purposes. So Dante rewrites the Gospel of Luke to his purposes because he wants Jesus to die at noon. I'm not sure I buy that. I'm not sure that Dante just doesn't remember it right and just isn't looking down at a New Testament and doesn't exactly remember it and it's up in his brain. You know, you get thoughts lodged up in your brain. Such and such happened in such and such a year or such and such a time. And you, you can't get it lodged out of your head no matter how hard you try. Like that. There's some way that the noon signature just gets fused up in Dante's head in my interpretation, and he's constantly thinking that. It makes perfect sense here that Jesus died at noon because if it's 7 in the morning, it's 5 hours until noon, yesterday, Good Friday, 1,266 years ago, this is 1,300. I mean, Dante is dating the poem absolutely precisely, and as you know, I think the poem takes place on March 25th in the year 1300. What does this all mean for us? Well, there's one more strange thing to notice here, and that is why does Evil Tale, Malakota, so precisely date the poem? Let me give you what I think. Why does he date? like this. You know, he throws out this fact. He doesn't date the poem, but you know what I mean. He throws out this fact that is just so incontrovertible. And yes, from it, we can date the poem, but still, he's throwing out a fact that you, you know, he's saying <laughs> Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492, that, that kind of thing. Why? Because facts can cover lies really well. If you tell a lie and you follow it immediately with a fact, I don't know, you lie to your spouse that you that you didn't sleep with someone, you're being accused of adultery, and you lie and say, I was not, and besides that's the day you were wearing the red dress. And let's say, you know, it was true that the day you skipped out of your house and did the deed, your spouse was wearing the red dress that day. You know that if you follow your lie with a fact, it suddenly makes the lie seem realer. There is a way in which we will discover this demon is lying and he's following it up instantly with a fact. And all I'm going to say about that is it's superhuman. Dante is really good at, uh, what do I want to say, at giving us the human, even though this is a demon, the human motivation. This is completely understandable. He's lied. We'll find out why soon enough in another passage, and we'll find out how soon enough in another passage, but he instantly covers it up with facts. There's nothing that covers a lie up like statistics and like dates and like incontrovertible facts. You know what else can get covered with facts? <laughs> poetry. Poetry gets covered with facts. You know what makes poetry plausible? It's reality claims. When you make up a scenario in poetry, but you make it up such that it looks enough like the real world that it could be true, you're using verisimilitude, facts, to, in fact, uh, substantiate your imaginative claim. I'm sitting here thinking about Gerard Manley Hopkins, 
Margaret, are you grieving over Golden Grove unleaving? Leaves like the things of man you with your fresh thoughts care for. Can you? That great poem by Hopkins. Whether Hopkins ever addressed a young girl named Margaret and basically told her that if you're sad about the fall, you're just sad because... Twas the blight man was born for. It was Margaret that you mourned for. That that you, you're not mourning because the leaves are falling. You're mourning because we all die. And you know it when you see the leaves die. Such a cheerful poem. In that poem, Hopkins' clear invocation of the natural world, the facts of the natural world, golden grove unleaving, the leaves falling off the trees in this golden grove, that, that bit it makes the imaginative landscape of the poem realer. Facts also establish the reality of poetry, and the reality of this journey is being established by its accurate dating here in much the same way that evil tale, Malakota is covering up his lies with factual dating. And the verisimilitude of this dating helps us take this as a real journey, when in fact, it can't be. Let's look at these demons that evil tale summons up. He says, I'm mustering my men to go along and see if there's any sinner that's come up for here. Remember when the one demon who runs along the cliff and throws the barrator into the pitch where you see that guy kind of hit it and then turn over and they start screaming at him you know don't don't stick up or we're going to poke you with our forks so he says you know they're going to do their their normal uh guard watch their normal walk along the ledge and see if any sinners are poking up above the, the boiling pitch because if they are they're going to get poked and Evil Tell says, you can go along with my men. They won't harm you. Boy, you should have another bell go off in your head right there. They won't harm you. Must be the first polite demons ever in the history of the world. Okay, and now here they come. And there are 10 of them. That's important. It's a decina. It's 10, and the, the word decina gets used, and that's the 10 men that make up a traditional Roman squadron. So this is all a giant parody of Roman military might. And here they come up. The first one up is Harlequin. Step up. Alecchino in the Florentine. Alecchino is the Florentine translation of Harlequin. Who is Harlequin? Oh my gosh, a figure out of French folklore. Harlequin is one of the leaders of a band who chase an 11th century monk all over Normandy, tormenting in various ways, without without the help of any Calvados, just tormenting him across Normandy. This Harlequin becomes eventually a player in all kinds of North Central European folklore. Uh, he becomes the leader of the Wild Hunt. If you don't know about the Wild Hunt, it's a folkloric tradition of a demonic wild hunt from evil creatures of us poor mortals here. Uh, Harlequin becomes often the leader of that hunt. Later, even pre-Dante, Harlequin is often seen, especially in folklore, as the one demon who will grab you and pull you down to hell. That he is up first here is telling us 
a la the last episode of this podcast, that there is a folkloric demon tradition being invoked in this very passage. So Harlequin's up first, and then a guy I called Frost Trampler in the Florentine, that's Calcabrina. Calcabrina is a fusion most likely, this is highly debated, but most likely a fusion of two words, hoarfrost, you know, the hoarfrost that lies on the ground, a a light frost, and when you step on it, it instantly disappears. You know, it's not that heavy, hard ice. It's just the hoarfrost on top of, let's say, the grass in your yard, and you step on it, and you instantly see your footprints. It's it's a fusion of the word for hoarfrost and a word for treading or walking or strolling. So I translated it as frost trampler. It probably means somebody who... Um, wrecks really delicate things really quickly and readily. Thus, my translation, Frost Trampler. So first Harlequin, then Frost Trampler, or Alecchino, and then Calcabrina, and then Cagnazzo. Cagnazzo is what I translated as badass dog. This is the word for dog, cane, with a pejorative suffix, azzo, added to it. So bad dog, I said badass dog because it sounded even nastier. It's, you know, a big bad snarling dog, but it is still colloquialized. It's not Canazzo, but Cagnazzo, it's still colloquialized a bit. There are scholars who debate this translation of Cagnazzo from bad dog to something else. Next, he calls out Curly Beard to lead the squadron, the Decina, the Roman squadron of 10. That's Barbariccia, which does in fact mean Curly Beard. It's probably a incredibly vulgar reference to pubic hair, not to the beard on your face. So I could have translated it pubic hair or, you know, uh, a genital beard. Curly hair, come up. Uh, come up here and lead the squadron. There's a lot of scholarly discussion about how exactly vulgar it is. The reason there's so much discussion about how vulgar Babariccia is is because of the next demon called up. I almost called him a person. The next demon called up, Libicoco. I translated it as love crack, and I think it's just about that vulgar. There are various traditions to this, let me tell you, and my translation may not be right. Some people, some scholars, think that this is a fusion of Libeccio, which is the the name for the southwest wind, and Scirocco, which is the name of the southeast east wind. So in other words, this would be like big wind, big, big, bad drying out winds, the southwest and the southeast winds that can ruin crops. I tend to take it another way. I take there's a lot of scholars who I'm following here who translate it actually as a fusion of the Latin libet, meaning it is pleasing, plus coca, which is not. We've already had it in the last passage. In fact, I've even read this as a fusion of libet from the Latin and the Florentine word for apricot, biricocola, and the Florentine word for apricot is a vulgarism for female genitalia in Dante's day. It probably is at bat, Libi Coco is probably just about as vulgar as it gets in the passage. At least I take it that way. I don't take it as wind. I take it as bodily. And so I translated it as love crack. And I'll then next up comes, I said, little big dragon. That's Dragignazzo. 
Dragignazzo is a wild fusion of Draco for dragon and maybe Guigno, which is to sneer, plus the Azzo, that bad suffix meaning bad. I translate as little big dragon. It's it's a very complex and fused up word. Then comes tusked big pig. This is Chiriato, which is probably a play on a Greek word for pig with ato meaning big attached onto the back of it. The demon is only tusked or has big teeth, but you know, tusked big pig. And then graficane. I translated as mange dog. Yeah, graffiare is to scratch and cane is dog. So scratching dog, mange dog. And then butterfly imp. Farfello. You probably know farfelle pasta. It can mean butterfly. I translate it as butterfly imp because many scholars think this comes from a Provencal word, farfate, which means sprite or imp, perhaps pronounced in the Provencal farfadet. So I just fused them as butterfly imp as a difficult to translate. And finally, rubicante, which is actually a present participle. It probably means something like reddening or in reddening, but he, he's given crazy as an adjective, and I translated it as red face. There you go. There's the whole list of them, all 10 of them coming at you. What do we make of this? Maybe the point here is the utter and strange intranslatability of their names. Let me go back and just read it to you as if I was reading it with the Florentine names in place. Alecchino, step up. And Calcabrina, too, he started to say. You too, Cagnazzo. Babariccia will lead the squadron. Libicoco, come along. And Dragignazzo, as well as Ciriato and Graficane and Farfello and Rubicante, that crazy one. You go have a look at the simmering birdlime. These words are not very translatable into English. There is so much scholarly debate. And having spent all this time talking about why I translated them the way I do, let me back up and just say maybe their point is their intranslatability. Almost all of them are two or more words fused together in some way and mostly unnaturally. Many of them are bestial in some way. Many of them are bodily in some way. There may be even more bodily stuff going on here than we think. I even read an article recently that Redface Rubicante is basically calling him syphilis. They wouldn't know the disease syphilis, of course, but a, a uh, sexually transmitted disease most likely from the lesions and the syphilis and yada, yada, yada. I mean, it could be that. There's so much debate about these names. Maybe the point is their nonsense. Maybe their point is their craziness. And let me make two sub-points about that. One, would you trust a pack of 10 of these with these names, with Libicoco and Chiriato and Rubicante? If, if I called them all up at you and you saw some of them were tusked and were referred to it by their leader as crazy, would you trust them to take you somewhere? And secondly, 
Maybe Dante the poet is daring us. Here, amongst those who are accused of the very sin that he himself was exiled for, he lets his freak flag of the imagination fly in the names of the demons. And it's almost, at least I read it, an almost act of bravery. I'm just going to get vulgar, and I'm going to get crazy, and I'm going to get absurdist, in so many ways with their names, and I am just going to pull out all the stops because, after all, this is the sin of which I was accused and which sent me into exile. Later, when we get in the Purgatorio, we will find that Dante believes he has to confess other sins. But here, in this sin, which may have been trumped up by his political rivals in Florence to send him into exile— Maybe here he just lets his imagination go and comes to the point in which this highly, highly communicable poem, this poem that is about trying to tell you about a journey across the known universe, is trying to teach you the fundamentals of conversion, is trying to teach you the fundamentals of God and how the universe is administered. This poem here descends into silliness because A, I can do it the poet says, B, because you're going to accuse me of a crime I'm not guilty of, watch this, watch what else I can do inside a holy poem, or my imagination is bigger than the crime itself. All of these things lead us to this crazy pack of demons, and it's going to get crazier from here, but you got to come back for that. We've gone on a long time about translation and translation problems in this episode, but nonetheless, I think it's important to talk about those translation problems and also to see this just wild mangy pack of crazy demons who are going to set off along the ledge and somehow lead our pilgrim and Virgil to safety, yeah right. So subscribe to this podcast. If you don't mind, give it a rating. If you drop a comment, I, I don't know what to say. I'll dance at your next wedding. I'll dance at your first wedding. I'll dance at any wedding you have. Otherwise, come back, because how can you leave at this point when a troop of insane demons with insane names are going to lead a classical, austere, oh, so proper poet Virgil and a rather scared pilgrim along a ledge? in the pockets of fraud in hell. I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is Walking with Dante.